From our 901 Mission Street studios, you are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Welcome to It's All Political, the Chronicle's politics podcast. Today's guest is Congressman Adam Schiff, who I met at a TV studio in Sacramento and in a room that looked like somebody's basement rec room, these really weird couches. And in fact, he said it looked like his in-laws' couches, which was even weirder. But anyways, he's uh, he tells me about whether he would run for Diane Feinstein's seat if she doesn't run for re-election. I'm Joe Garofoli, and this is It's All Political. Okay, uh, we're here in Sacramento at the Democratic uh, or California Democratic Party convention with. Congressman Adam Schiff, the ranking uh, Democrat on the Intelligence Committee. Thanks for taking a few minutes with Great us today. To be with you. We are here on day 121 of the Trump presidency, and the last 10 to 14 have been um, very intense. We've had, it's almost like three mortal, uh, three or four mortal uh, events that might have uh, killed any other presidency have come in a row. Um, what are you most concerned about? That has happened in the last few days. Well, I think what's most concerning is the allegation, and at this point, it's just an allegation that the uh, president um, asked the then director of the FBI to essentially back off a part of the Russia investigation involving Michael Flynn. Uh, that's deeply, deeply disturbing. And of course, the president's own admission uh, to Lester Holt that he got rid of Comey because of the Russia investigation, and then. A very similar theme in his meeting, apparently, with the Russians in the Oval Office. Uh, it's hard to, you know, pull out any one of those straws, but uh, but the portrait is very disturbing uh, altogether. And that the president would be discussing the firing of James Comey in that meeting. We now see pictured with them laughing and uh, evidently having a good time in the White House, mm-hmm. rather than confronting the Russians on what they did in our democracy, what it looks like they just did in the French elections uh, is appalling to me. And so it's, it's several things. Now, with the appointment of uh, Robert Mueller as a special counsel, how does that affect, first of all, you're, you're, you're okay with that, but how does that affect your committee's investigation? People are saying, you know, we hear things like, um, you know, this may supersede it, or how do these investigations work, and are you have any concerns that this may uh, impede your committee's investigation. I'm glad you asked because there is a lot of confusion about this. Um, And the bottom line is it shouldn't affect our committee at all Mm -hmm. because the job of the special prosecutor here or special counsel is to uh, supervise the FBI investigation and ultimately determine if charges should be brought. Before Mueller was appointed, uh, in theory, Rod Rosenstein was doing exactly the same thing. Uh, So it's only the personnel that have changed. Now, uh, that's vis-a-vis our committee. Nonetheless, it was very important to do because uh, I think the public would have had a very serious question about anything that came out of the Justice Department decided by someone within the Justice Department, mm-hmm. uh, whether it would have credibility when those ultimate decisions are made to charge or not charge and who to be charged. Mm-hmm. Uh, we need the public to feel that that decision is made on a completely independent basis. That's what Mueller brings. But uh, in terms of our investigation, 
We'll need to continue to coordinate with the Justice Department. Instead of coordinating with Mr. Rosenstein on Russia, we'll be coordinating with Bob Mueller. Uh, so when there are issues that come up about uh, whether uh, immunity should be given to a witness, uh, we'll want to talk with Mr. Mueller to find out what are the Justice Department equities here, how would we affect your investigation, or if you're contemplating a prosecution, the prosecution of a potential witness. So. Um, those okay. conversations who, who would, would have go primacy on? on something like that. Would, would you defer to them if, if uh, Mueller says, "No, we, we are going to give this guy immunity," or do you defer to them or what? Uh, not necessarily. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, obviously, we're going to give a very heavy weight to the Justice Department equities, um, but it may depend uh, on the witness and the significance of what they would contribute. Uh, at the end of the day, and this is also something I think very important for people to understand. Um, if Mr. Mueller decides to bring no charges, he will likely say nothing about it. The American people will not know why. Uh, what he looked at, what may have risen to the level of uh, proof, but not beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, and so one of the functions we have is to ultimately educate the public. Like, here's what we found. Uh, here's who we think were involved. Or here's what we found there was nobody involved. Uh, but given the fact that Mueller still will report to Rod Rosenstein, uh, and you could see from Rod Rosenstein's memo, he doesn't believe the Justice Department should comment on uh, anything but uh, a perfunctory statement that the investigation is closed. How important it will be to have a body that is the Congress be able to speak to what we did find and what the significance is and what steps should be taken as a result. Uh, you know, in, we certainly could call him to testify, but there's no guarantee that he would agree to answer the questions, uh, particularly in a public session. Uh, and I would analogize it to when we had Director Comey come and testify in open session. There were some questions he was willing to answer. He was willing to say, for example, that he was conducting an investigation uh, that began in July of last year into whether there was any kind of coordination between the Trump campaign uh, and the Russians. But at the same time, he wouldn't answer specific questions. And it's very possible that at the end of Mr. Mueller's investigation, we could get the same kind of response. What, are you satisfied? The last time we spoke, when you were before the Chronicle uh, editorial board, we were talking about the pace of the investigation. And sort of, at that point, it was uh, uh, Congressman Nunes was sort of in the middle of the, the uh, snafu, for lack of a better word, that uh, he was involved in. Um, where is, what is the status of the House investigation now? What would you like to see happen? And, and are you comfortable that the pace is picked up? Uh, I am comfortable that we're back on track. Uh, I've got a good working relationship with the new Republican lead, uh, Mr. Conaway from Texas. Uh, so we have been uh, calling for the witnesses to come in. We've been scheduling open hearings and closed hearings. In fact, uh, on Tuesday, uh, we'll have an open hearing with former CIA Director Brennan. Uh, so I am pleased that we have managed to get ourselves back on track. It's enormously important. Uh, that both the investigations in House and Senate go forward. We have very limited resources in either committee. Should either committee's investigation go away, that would mean effectively half uh, of the investigative resources devoted uh, to this in Congress. So um, we are very much uh, going ahead. And uh, one other thing about the, uh, the, uh, the AG's investigation now, that doesn't take any uh, resources away from you. It's not like there's, so, there's now, what, three bodies investigating this issue. That doesn't deplete resources from, from your committees, does it? Uh, not at all. And in fact, uh, the investigation that Bob Mueller will do, the investigative arm for him, will be the FBI. Uh, that is among the most important of the investigations because, particularly on the issue of collusion, 
the FBI has a reach that we don't have. Uh, they can obviously fan out across the globe. Uh, they can interview people uh, that may be inaccessible to us. We're certainly going to try to do all that, but we don't have the capacity and the reach that the FBI does. So that will be at Mr. Mueller's uh, beck and call. Uh, so it's uh, enormously important that go on and not be impeded in any way. Part of our job vis-a-vis -vis that investigation will be to make sure, uh, does he have the resources that he needs? Does the FBI have the resources? Uh, is there any uh, effort to interfere in what he's doing? I'm confident that if there is, uh, he will let us know. Uh, so we'll be doing that kind of oversight. The question that I'm sure you get all the time and that we get certainly in, in, in Northern California the heart of the resistance is um, how close are we to impeachment? And I, we hear that, I'm asked that all the time. I have to say, like, what, what, we should ask Schiff. Uh, where, what, how close is this to an impeachment? And um, what, what needs to happen? Are we closer because of this uh, special counsel at all? Does that enable people to be closer to impeachment? Well, I think what people need to realize is that uh, we are still in the fairly early stages of this investigation, and uh, none of us really know where the investigation will lead. Uh, it's our obligation to try to be thorough about it, try to uh, bring a sense of urgency, but make sure that we uh, chase down uh, all the important leads. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't think any of us know where we end up. Uh, and I understand there's rampant speculation about what will we find and what will the consequences be and could the consequences be as, as serious as impeachment. But I, I don't think we really um, can predict at this point uh, where the trail of evidence will lead. I do think that uh, the appointment <clears throat> of Bob Mueller, who is someone respected by Democrats and Republicans, someone that I've known for many years now, um, ought to give people the confidence that uh, as far as the Justice Department is concerned, uh, there will be a diligent and credible investigation done. And I don't think Bob Mueller is the kind of person that's going to let anyone interfere in his work. Uh, last night you gave the keynote address at uh, Saturday night. Uh, you gave the keynote address to the State Party Convention. And um, <clears throat> you alluded to the president saying the other day that uh, James Comey was a nut job. And you said James Comey was a lot of things, but he was not a nut job. Um, what would you if he were to come before the, your committee again, what would you want to ask him? Well, first of all, I'm, I'm really glad that uh, he's agreed to come back before the Congress and testify in open session. I would have loved to have him come to our committee, but it looks like the Senate beat us to it. Mm -hmm. um, well, I, of course, I think among the most pressing questions are uh, whether he uh, felt pressured in any way by the president to either drop a particular case, as is alleged, uh, about uh, the discussion over Mike Flynn, uh, or whether there were any other conversations with the president where there looked to be an effort to interfere in any way with the investigation. Um, I think those are among the most important questions. Of course, we'd like to know whether he took contemporaneous notes. Uh, that's also been alleged uh, in the press. Uh, so uh, I think these are some of the most important questions for Director Comey. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about uh, let's talk about politics now. Uh, last night, as you said, you gave the uh, the keynote address, and. Uh, that, that's your first keynote address there, correct? Yes. Yeah. Um, some, to start, someone yelled out, I love you, and you yelled, I love you too. Has that ever happened in a speech before? <laughs> it, uh, I'm trying to think if my <laughs> wife ever came to one of the speeches and said that. And should. <laughs> uh, I don't think so. Um, certainly not in an environment that big. Uh, yeah. 
it was a real it was a real treat to be able to speak to the assembled uh, uh, party membership and party leadership. And and one of the things that made it uh, so special for me is that I was invited <clears throat> by John Burton, <clears throat> who I serve with in the state senate, and who is you know just a legend. And uh, to be asked by him uh, at his very last uh, convention uh, was really uh, such an honor. Um, and I couldn't help but tease him a bit about his vocabulary. <laughs> yes, you were very creative in how you described the uh, the chairman's use of the f bomb, which he dropped has dropped gratuitously over the last two <laughs> days, especially during some of the demonstrations. How, explain how you your your uh, your connection with Burton and his use of the f bomb, well, and how he uses it. Uh, I was remarking last night. Uh, you know, I've often said over the last 120 days that I'm running out of adjectives and expletives. Yes. Uh, but I gave a nod to John by saying that John taught me, among other things, when I was in the state senate, that it wasn't the number of words you knew, it was how you deployed them. And uh, I've heard just about every intonation of certain words from John. Uh, but uh, And he uses that one word as a, as a noun, a verb, an adjective, yes, uh, and, any, and many uh, other forms. Appetizer, <laughs> main course, and dessert. Uh, yeah, he's quite something. I The only other person I've met with uh, such creative use uh, of that vocabulary uh, was Rahm Emanuel. <laughs> okay, if you had to compare F-bomb usages, who who used more creative, would you say? I don't think anyone is really in John Burton's league. He's, he's yeah. Hall of Fame first ballot. In terms Although of one of my favorite uh, uh, Rahm stories, I was at a press dinner with, where Rahm was the speaker, and he was talking about how much he had in common with... Uh, Barack Obama, and he was saying, we're both from Illinois, we're both this, we're both that, we both have unusual names, Barack, which is Swahili for blessed, blessed Ram, which is Hebrew for go F yourself. It's <laughs> <laughs> uh, so the, the theme of your speech last night was resistance. And one of the lines in, in your speech was, and so I find myself in a role to which I am not uh, accustomed, uh, to which I did not aspire to, but what is required. Uh, for those of us who were able to, uh, unable to stand by idly and watch the undoing of all that we cherish. Um, your, your background is, uh, you, know, you grew up in the suburban uh, Bay Area, Stanford, Harvard Law School. What is your history of resistance? I mean, this is this is an uncomfortable, or not an uncomfortable, but unusual role for you. What, what have you done in the past that has been sort of a resistance type thing? Well, I, honestly, I think uh, I've never felt uh, as alarmed as I have today about the actions of an administration. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, th I think what what I was alluding to there, and, uh, and certainly something I've heard from uh, friends and supporters, is I'm not a flamethrower. That's not my style. I didn't yes. go to Congress to um, just lob grenades at the other side. Yeah. But uh, I'm so desperately concerned about what this president is doing that I feel uh, that I really need to speak out and act out in a way that I haven't before. Um, I'm desperately worried not only about what he's doing to the country now, but what it will mean to the office of the presidency in the future. That he is effectively so demeaning the office that people who occupy it thereafter will have a different expectation about how they can behave. And De Defining it down in, in a way. Absolutely, saying. absolutely. Um, and a lot of what has made our country so successful and our system of government so successful is the observation of certain uh, norms of behavior, uh, certain uh, uh, elements of just common decency. And you see that when they're not observed, that there's a lot you can do within the law that is deeply damaging. 
that really um, causes the foundations of the democracy to shudder. And, uh, and so uh, I do feel that I have a different role now that I have to play um, because we have a president who doesn't respect the independence of the judiciary, clearly doesn't respect the independence of the FBI. Uh, he doesn't even understand, I think, much about the constitutional scheme of things. He thinks he's still running his private business. Uh, he thinks in many respects that the public is there to serve him. Uh, and it's astounding to me how often he plays victim, uh, as if uh, uh, he's somehow being mistreated by the country. He's our president. He's supposed to be leading the country. Uh, and uh, you would think that uh, uh, when he talks about, uh, hey, look, if if you're going to expect my spokespeople to be accurate all the time, maybe I won't talk with you. You know, that's not for him. Um, the country has a right to expect that his people are going to speak honestly about the decisions he's making and the actions he's taking. And if he didn't want the, that burden of responsibility, he should have never run for the job. Uh, I think it's plain he had no understanding of what job he was getting into. And I, and I have to hope that the country will look at this experience and say, you know, experience really does matter. Uh, we need in the future to make sure that regardless of how we may feel about uh, wanting uh, someone outside the political process, there are real risks. It's a complete roll of the dice when we elect someone who has no experience in governing. Do you, what are we, what story as we focus on the Russia uh, collusion, alleged collusion uh, situation, what stories are we not talking about right now? What's, what's going on in the administration that you're concerned about aside from this, that, that you know, because this story is taking up so much oxygen, we're not, we're not getting to? This is, you know, indeed one of the preeminent challenges that we have, and that is, uh, as you started out in the beginning of the interview saying, you know, any one of these things might be enough to bring down a presidency. There are things that are shocking all the time, uh, and that uh, in the ordinary scheme of things uh, would, be, would be so dramatic as to call all of our attention. You know, what this president is doing on the environment. Uh, the fact that he would appoint someone to run the Department of Energy who wanted to abolish the department but could remember which one it was, uh, that we have a climate denier at the head of the EPA, that we may even contemplate walking away from the climate agreement, the global leadership role that we've played. And that's just one issue. Uh, but you look at uh, uh, everything from uh, making the, the White House operations more opaque we can't tell who's visiting the White House anymore. We have to rely on the Russian press for photographs of what goes on in the Oval <laughs> Office. I, I, it's just uh, one thing after another. And some people speculate this is the bizarre genius of the president to just throw everything out there and nothing will stick. I don't think this is uh, deliberate. Uh, I think this is just who the president is uh, and who he has surrounded himself with. Uh, they are intent on tearing down the government. Uh, the fact that we have a Secretary of State who is supporting a president's budget that would cut a third of the State Department, um, the fact that uh, I, I think as the president is communicating now in not so many ways, uh, human rights uh, and the promotion of democracy are no longer going to be foremost uh, among our priorities on the international scene. Uh, all of these things are, are just so deeply disturbing. and. Um, it's hard to know where to begin. Mm. Um, do you think in all this, in this moment, um, where the thirst for sort of straightforward uh, discussion of these issues, someone who can who can break down these very complex issues like the like the Russia story, 
someone who's talking about uh, the resistance and embracing it from California. Did you feel like you sort of found your political voice in this moment? Well, I will say this. Uh, I, I find the, the somewhat instant notoriety um, uh, very baffling uh, because I certainly don't feel I'm doing anything differently than I've ever done. Yeah. Um, and the only thing I can conclude is that uh, when people used to tell me in the past, oh, you know, you're so thoughtful, you're so rational, and I really appreciate how you explain, you know, this and that, um, I would always make the same jest. <clears throat> and I would say, plainly, I have no future in this business. And, uh, but I do think maybe because the, of the extremity of the way this president speaks and acts, uh, there is a hunger for people who uh, talk more plainly, more rationally, uh, so maybe uh, maybe the moment has caught up with me in that respect. Uh, now, speaking of the moment, we, we will. Uh, Diane Feinstein has not said whether she's going to run for re-election next year. And I know you enjoy your job right now. This is this is the shift a shift moment, if you will. But should she decide not to run for Senate for re-election, would you consider running for that job? Well, first of all, I, I hope that she does run again um, because uh, it's kind of an all-hands-on-deck situation right now. And uh, she has an extraordinary level of experience on the Intelligence Committee and with that investigation on judiciary, on appropriations. Uh, she's in a real key position right now, and uh, we are benefiting from her leadership and her experience. And plus, I have a wonderful working relationship with her. Um, so I hope she runs again. Uh, if she decides not to for whatever reason, it's certainly something I would consider. Uh, but uh, it's my you know, strong uh, hope, and I'm not being politic about this, that she does run for re-election. I think she's a tremendous public servant. And what is, your, what is your handicap on that? Do you think she will? You know, I haven't talked with her about it, so I really don't know. Um, I, I honestly don't know. In your speech last night, it was, which was a very sweeping speech, it, was, uh, it, it touched on a lot of different things. And right now there's a lot of divisions in the Democratic Party, both here in California and nationally. And you said you've learned things from Bernie Sanders, from uh, Hillary Clinton, from Howard Dean. Um, but there's definitely fissures in the party right now, M many of them lingering from the primary race last year. What would you do... Um, to sort of heal those fissures? Uh, you know, I think you're absolutely right. There are certainly divisions within the party, and whenever you lose a major election, uh, there's a lot of soul-searching that goes on, sometimes a lot of internecine warfare that goes on, mm -hmm. um, and the debate is usually the same. Uh, no matter which party has, has lost, uh, the question within that party is always, did we lose because we had too small a tent, that we weren't inclusive enough of others, or did we lose because we had lost... Uh, our commitment to our core values. And the Republicans asked the same question when they lose. So when they lost, uh, they said, well, some of the party said we lost because we nominated rhinos, Republicans in name only, only like McCain and uh, Romney. And Romney. Uh, others said, uh, uh, no, uh, we weren't a big enough tent. Uh, and so we're having that debate in some respects. Uh, and it's you know roughly characterized as whether you were a Bernie person or a Hillary person. You know, I do think that the, the the dangers to the republic are so substantial right now. We have to find a way uh, to bridge that divide, to bind up the party's wounds, so to speak, um, because we need everyone pulling together.
Uh, and, you know, the, the challenge, and I talked about this last night, I think, for the party, is less one about message. Um, I think we spend too much time talking about messages. If we simply said things differently, we'd have a dramatically different result. Uh, I think there are certain fundamental questions we have to answer uh, in order to win in parts of the country where we haven't been winning. Um, and one of the analyses that I found so interesting about the last election is communities that were growing uh, went with one candidate, Hillary Clinton, and those that were shrinking went with Donald Trump. Literally, literally communities where people felt left behind, indeed had been left behind, went with Donald Trump. Uh, and we need to have an adequate answer to those uh, questions that folks in those communities are asking. You know, why should we uh, have hope? What are you offering uh, that our lives can be different, our kids' lives can be different? And you have every right to ask those questions, that question. And I think we need to spend the next uh, year um, trying to answer that question and, and with an agenda that, that works in a world that's global, uh, in a world where there's increasing automation. Um, and I think we have to be honest with people, and and uh, and we have to tell people uh, in certain places uh, where there were certain industries that uh, your kids' jobs are not going to be the same jobs as your parents' jobs, uh, but that's okay because we think we can bring better jobs to this community, and here's how we, we can do that. Um, so I think people respect that kind of honesty. Uh, they don't want to be pandered to. Uh, they don't want to be uh, talked down to. Uh, I think they're they're willing to confront difficult truths, uh, but they do want to know that you understand the challenges they're facing and that you have something to offer uh, to give them hope. Do you think the Democrats failed to do that in this last election? I do think we failed to do that. I, I think we failed in part because uh, we didn't spend enough time in those parts of the country. Um, I think we uh, failed because we didn't contest uh, those parts of the, the battlefield uh, in terms of the, the campaign fight. Um, you know, one of the early things I learned when I was out walking precincts uh, and I talked to sort of the elder statesmen, you have to ask people for their vote. At the end of the day, you have to ask people for their vote. You can't do that if you're not there. Uh, and I don't think we were sufficiently present in large parts of the country. And uh, I remember when I was running for Congress in 2000, I was run, running against a Republican incumbent in a Republican-leaning district. And uh, I didn't spend all my time in the areas talking to people who were already naturally with me. I went to the areas where they were not likely to be with me, but where I thought if they could see me, if they could say I didn't have horns, if they could hear some of my ideas, uh, maybe I could win some of them over. And, uh, and I did, and that was enough for me to win in a difficult district. Um, I think we ought to be shooting to win 65% of the vote, not 51% of the vote in the country, because when you shoot to win 51%, half the time you will and half the time you won't. Mm -hmm. the, uh, you have a very un a somewhat unusual background for, for a politician in that when you were at Stanford, you took both the MCATs and the LSATs. First of all, that's freakishly smart. Um, what, how did you decide between, you know, how did you, you know, many politicians, you know, they were almost they were born with a blue blazer on. Uh, what made you decide to this? You, you're, even your own, and we're going back to your, as we said on the couch that you goofed on uh, here today, is something like something <laughs> from the suburban, uh, you know, like a couch you had, your, your in-laws gave you. Um, what, in, in, when you were growing up, even your mom said, I, uh, he never told me who he was dating, he was very quiet. 
you're voted most likely to succeed in high school. And you said, I didn't know, I've read this quote in the story, but I didn't know people knew who I was. Someone who's very thoughtful and, and, uh, and very bright. Um, how do you become a politician uh, for someone who seems to be, I don't want to say introverted, but, but quiet? How did, how did that happen? Well, I, you know, I was interested in medicine. I was interested in, in uh, public policy, I, I think, for the same reason. Both, to me, looked like a service uh, occupation. Um, and, and uh, you know, I, I was raised uh, to believe that we have an obligation to give back, and I thought giving back through medicine would be great. And I mm -hmm. thought giving back through, through other means, uh, um, working in the public policy realm was another way to serve. Mm -hmm. And it took me a long time to figure it out, and I procrastinated... Uh, you know, taking the MCATs and the LSATs tells you more about my propensity to procrastinate than it does anything else. Um, that's, a, that's a lot of studying. But I, I remember uh, when I did make the decision having a conversation with my parents, uh -huh. and uh, uh, they were very eager for me to go to medical school, my mother in particular, um, for you to get that close to uh, allowing a Jewish mother to say, my son, the doctor, and then take it away is a very cruel thing to do. But my son, the lawyer, is kind of, kind of the, okay. That's, uh, oh, no, that's no, a little, no, not, not no, quite. That's it's, a very distant second. Oh, really? Okay, oh, absolutely, all right. Absolutely. My absolutely. son, the doctor, is okay. Right. Uh, but uh, I remember saying, you know, I thought that medicine would be very interesting and satisfying, but um, it didn't get me as excited as I was about, yeah. you know, what was going on in the world. Um, and... Uh, so that, you know, that drove me in a different direction, and uh, I loved the work I did uh, as a prosecutor in the U.S. Attorney's Office, um, and I feel I've been very fortunate to, uh, to do work I'm doing now. Um, but, uh, um, you know, I, I uh, haven't, you know, given as much thought to the future during the course of my life as maybe other people do in terms of charting out and planning out things. And one thing I tell young people is, you know, don't spend all your time focusing on what you want to do next or doing things to prepare you for where you want to end up uh, because then you end up not enjoying the moment you're living in. Yeah. And uh, when I read biographies, I always think the most interesting part of a biography is not what people do after they get there, uh, but the journey along the way. Uh Congressman, thank you so much for your time, and uh, we'll see you on we'll see you on cable TV. <laughs> <laughs> see you then. Don't okay. hesitate, hit mute as necessary. <laughs> thank you so much. Bye bye. Thank you for listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Our guest was Congressman Adam Schiff, and now we know whether he's going to run for Senate or not. Read more about local coverage of politics and subscribe to the San Francisco Chronicle at sfchronicle.com. I'm Joe Garifoli, and remember, no matter who you are or what you're doing, it's all political. You've been listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Our executive producer is Fernando Diaz. Our editor-in-chief is Audrey Cooper. And our producers are Peter Hartlaub, Brittany Schell, and Claire Varellis. It's all political's theme music. We have theme music. It's called Cattle Call by Randy Clark's Crow Song. The Chronicle's Josh Zucker, who is our podcast's musical director, is on base. If you like what you heard, good news, there's more. Listen to Chronicle Podcasts and get bonus content at sfchronicle.com backslash podcasts, plural, or subscribe to iTunes, Stitcher, or other streaming services. <laughs>